Well, again, I want to welcome you here today. I'm, I'm glad you came. I hope that you did have a very Merry Christmas. Just curious, how many of you here this morning are wearing something new? Yeah, I mean, isn't it awesome that we all get new clothes and socks and shoes and underwear, uh, all the things that we need, right, uh, for Christmas, and uh, I hope that you had an exciting time enjoying this summer-like weather we're having here at Christmas. Is it not crazy? We had a fish fry last night, and uh, this seemed appropriate, so, uh, but uh, God is good to us, uh, and we'll enjoy this weather while we can. Also want to welcome those that are joining us online. I know that we probably have many that are joining us through the live feed today, and it's great to have you join us as well. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5 this morning. Luke chapter 5, and while you're finding that, just a reminder, we won't be having any Wednesday night services this week. And next Sunday, we will be back to two services, 8.30 and 10.30. So for our 8.30 crowd, I know y'all absolutely love that service. And uh, that'll, be, that'll be back next Sunday, and we're looking forward to that and a new year. Well, we're continuing today and, and on into the new year. This series that we've been in over the past few weeks that we're calling A Step of Faith. A step of faith, and it's a series of messages uh, that um, taking out of the Gospel of Luke. We've been in the Gospel of Luke uh, for several weeks now, and we will continue to do that uh, in the weeks ahead. But what we've been talking about is what it means to take a step of faith that is actually uh, a, a real step of faith. You know, a lot of people will take a step and they say, well, you know, I, I became a Christian at a young age or I accepted Christ, you know, at some point in my life. And, and you know, they feel like that was a step of faith uh, in their life that, that brought them that. And it was. It was faith believing that that God is who He says He is and that Jesus is the Son of God and that He came to die on the cross for our sins. And a lot of people believe that and in their mind they say, you know, I can, I can wrap my mind around this Savior, but they never allow this step of faith that they took, this belief in this Almighty God to actually transform them and to change them. And so that's what we've been talking about in this series, and we're going to continue to talk about in the weeks ahead, that this step of faith is a transforming faith. It's a, it's a step that radically will change your lives, and not necessarily just in an instant. I mean, uh, God doesn't clean us up. You know, yes, all of our past sins are forgiven, but that doesn't mean that He makes us perfect when we take this step of faith. And, and, and we all know that none of us here today are perfect, and if you think that you're perfect, and <laughs> ask the person beside you because they will tell you that you're not, right? Uh, and so God is continually doing this transformation in our hearts and in our lives, and it's this ongoing process uh, of this work that He does in our heart. And so that's what we're talking about. That's what our focus is about, is that this step of faith actually changes our lives. It changes our situations. It changes who we are. God's Word says that it makes us a new creation, a new person in Christ Jesus. And so my challenge has been, you know, if you took a step of faith, maybe as a child or, or maybe even later in life, and, and you embrace this idea uh, of a Savior, but it hasn't changed you, then, then that should challenge us about if we actually really took a step of faith. Um, and so this week we're looking at the step of faith uh, that, that transform not only our lives, for those of us that have experienced that, but it also, when we take this step of faith that transforms us and changes us, it also allows a door to be opened that other lives would be changed 
and other lives would be transformed. And if you were here with us last week, Lynette took us to uh, the beginning of the New Testament. And, and did you not just love the fact that she was up here and made this platform look so much better uh, last week? Uh, we, we enjoyed that, and uh, we, we need to do that more often because she is such a blessing to me, a blessing to our church. Uh, after the new year, she's going to be starting a new class on how to study the Bible, and uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to sign up for that in the weeks ahead before we get that started. But last week, she took us to the beginning of the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 1, to what most people uh, think is probably the most boring verses in the Bible, the genealogy that we find there in Matthew chapter 1. And typically, when someone decides to read through the Bible, I know with the new year coming up, a lot of us will make a New Year's resolution that this is going to be the year that I'm going to read through the entire Bible or at least through the New Testament or something like that. And when, you know, we begin and, and we think that and, and we start that, uh, typically uh, we'll just skip right over. And Lynette said, you know, it's, it's something that she has even done, just skipping over that genealogy because it's just name after name after name after name. And it, it looks like a, a family tree because that's exactly what it is. And she pointed out for us, uh, last week that this list of names, it represents uh, an amazing and almost unbelievable lineage and family tree of Jesus the Christ child. And, and it's important uh, for us to, to uh, not only read it, but to study it and understand it. It's important because number one, it shows us this, that Jesus came from the line of David. That's one of the things that it proves to us and it shows us that Jesus, the Messiah, did come from the lineage of David. His family tree uh, comes out of the line of David, which had been prophesied hundreds of years before by the prophets uh, that prophesied of this Messiah. And, and the second interesting thing about uh, this list of names is that it includes, uh, and, and Lynette mentioned this to us last week, it includes the names of women. And, and in this time period, women would have never been listed in a genealogy or a, a family uh, tree. Uh, and not only that, but there are some names in there that if you have studied the Bible much at all and you know the stories of the Bible, there's some pretty shady characters that are listed in that lineage and Jesus' family tree as well. And, and you know, so uh, typically what would have happened if there would have been someone in, that in the family or in that lineage that kind of was a shady person or kind of a sketchy person or maybe someone that had embarrassed the family, well, they would have purposely left their name out of that lineage. I mean, they, they wouldn't have put it in there because it was something that they were not proud of, and so they would have left that person's name out of it. Some of you know what I'm talking about because some of you have thrown away old family photos of people that you don't want to remember anymore, right? I mean, uh, some of our grandmas actually would just take and cut a person out of a picture and then put it back in the photo album. You know, after a divorce or some embarrassment or something like that. And, uh, you know, some of us are, are guilty of that as well. But, you know, whether it be through a divorce or, you know, some shame, embarrassment to the family, we have family members that, you know, we don't, we don't brag about and we don't tell people we're related to them, right? Uh, we, we don't tell very many people at all that my wife actually came out of a, a family up around Graysville. Uh, called the Fowlers, because the Fowlers up around Graysville don't have that great of a reputation. Lynette and her family was about the best thing that came out of that bunch. She's shaking her head. I better hush, but no, there's, there's, some, good, there's some good people. There's a few of them that are good. Uh, I always joked with her that my favorite verse in the Bible was in the Old Testament where it says, uh, deliver me from the snare of a Fowler, right? And so, uh, but no, her family's good. Huh? Yeah, I have brother Darrow, he, he's from up around there. 
Yeah, God's country up there, isn't it? God's country. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's a great family, great people. But we do have people in our family that, you know, we, we just aren't too proud of. And back then, uh, they would be excluded from the lineage. They would just be left out and, and not included. And, and so, but, but that isn't the case here as Matthew writes this genealogy. I'm going to get to Luke here in just a minute, but I, I want to explain this because we're going to be talking about Matthew, and he writes this genealogy for us to have there in the New Testament, and, and it's almost as if Matthew kind of goes out of his way to weave in these names, to weave in these women, to weave in these people that he really didn't have to include, that didn't have to be included in this list of names. Number one, to prove that the family came out of the lineage of David. And not only that, but yes, he's acknowledging that in Jesus' lineage, there's some questionable people that were a part of his family and his family history that no one else would have included. And this list includes people who had done some really horrible things. How many of you remember the story of Joseph, where his brothers beat him up, uh, threw him in a well. Later, they sold him into slavery, right? One of those brothers that did this to Joseph, his name was Judah. And if you go there and you look at the lineage that Matthew has included there in his gospel, it includes the name of Judah, who most people would have probably left out of the family tree because of the things that he had done. Or, and then you have Tamar. Lynette mentioned her last week. And Tamar, I don't know how many of you are familiar with her story, but she was actually a woman that we read about in the Bible who dressed up and pretended to be a prostitute and she tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her so that she could have children. All right? And Tamar is listed in this lineage of Jesus. Then you have Rahab, who didn't pretend to be a prostitute. She was a prostitute, right? She, and Matthew goes out of his way to include Rahab in this lineage of Jesus. And then you have the wife of Uriah, who we all know was Bathsheba, who David had an affair with. He murdered her husband so that he could have Uriah's wife. All of these people are mentioned by Matthew in this lineage of Jesus. And friends, there's some really good reasons why Matthew did this, but the most important reason was this. This was very personal to Matthew. This meant a lot to Matthew because here's the deal. Before Jesus, Matthew was that person. Matthew was the person that his family disowned. He was that person that no one liked. He was that person that everybody said, you're a horrible, untrustworthy guy and we don't have anything to do with you. Right, Because Matthew was a tax collector. And tax collectors were considered to be the worst of the worst people back at this time and in this culture. They were hated by almost everyone. I don't know how many of you uh, have watched or have been watching uh, this series of shows uh, that's out now called The Chosen. Uh, many of you recommended it to Lynette and I, and I appreciate you doing that. Uh, we've been watching it, and man, it depicts so uh, so good the, the life of Matthew. It's a story about the life of Jesus is what it is, but you, you see in this uh, series of, of shows exactly who Matthew was and how people felt about him and how... Uh, dishonest he was, and he was a traitor to his people. Uh, tax collectors, they cared more about being rich than they did about having friends or even family. Uh, they, would even, they would betray their friends. They would betray their family 
in order to get their money. That's who Matthew was. He was a trader of people. He was a tax collector. And I'm sure there was a voice that was in Matthew's head. And some of you can relate to this. Some of you look back at your past and you look back at the things that you have done. And I'm sure Matthew had this voice in his head that said to him repeatedly, that's just who you are. You're a horrible person. You make bad decisions. You've proven it time and time again. And Matthew has accepted this in his heart and in his mind because the voice in his head is telling him that he's not worthy of anything but being treated the way that people treat him. And, and, and so uh, Matthew knew that he was a bad person. He knew that he deserved to be called those names that he'd been called. He knew that he deserved to be disowned by his family and, and his friends. But friends, don't miss this. All of that, all of that, all of his past, everything that he had done, the voices in his head, everything that he thought about himself, all of that changed when he met Jesus and he took this step of transforming faith toward a Savior. All of that changed in Matthew's life. And, and so this is why it was so important to him to mention the names of these shady and sketchy people that were the history in the lineage of Jesus just to show us. You know what? God can use anyone. He can change anyone. He can transform anyone. And Matthew wanted us to know that and understand that and, and realize that. And when Jesus showed up that day, to Matthew's tax booth where he's collecting taxes and being called names and being treated so ugly. And here in, in Luke chapter 5, it, it, it records what takes place here. Uh, not with a lot of fanfare, but, but we have a, a picture of what uh, Jesus did and, and with Matthew there. And he extends Matthew this very unexpected invitation to him. And Jesus knows all about him. He knows his past. He knows his present. He knows what he's done. He knows what he's guilty of. That he's a dishonest person. Jesus knows all of that. About everything that he had done. And what does he do? He shows him love. He extends him forgiveness. And he extends him an invitation to be a follower of him. Matthew, of all people, Jesus extends this invitation to be a part of His church, to be a part of His family, to be a part of this closest 12 people that He would do life with and ministry with over these next few years. Because Jesus knew if they saw Matthew... And they knew that Matthew's life had been radically changed. Then they could relate to that and go, you know what? If he can change Matthew's life, if he can change Matthew's situation, then he could change mine. Because they all knew Matthew and, and who he was. Jesus knew everything about what he had done. He showed him love. He invites him to be a part of this movement, friends, that would change all of humanity from that point until now. And verse 27 and 28 here in Luke chapter 5 says that Jesus went out and he saw this tax collector by the name of Levi, who was Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. Jesus simply says, follow me. And Levi got up. And he walked away from his past. He walked away from his present. He walked away from everything that had defined him up until this point. And he followed Jesus. Jesus invited Matthew to take a step of faith that would change not only his life, but it would change all of humanity. And from that point, up until now.
this time that we're living in right now. And because of that simple invitation, and because of that step of faith, a major transformation began, not only in Matthew's life, but in all of humanity. And like we've been talking, talking about over these past few weeks, friends, when you've experienced that, when you know that Jesus has done an amazing work in your heart and in your life, once you've experienced that and you get up every day knowing that Jesus is doing a work in you and He's doing a work through you and He loves you regardless of what your past is, regardless of the bad decisions and the mistakes and the stupid and foolish things that you've done in your past, God is still wanting to accept you and use you for His glory and His good in this world. And once we know that, and once we've experienced that, and once we have felt that take place in our hearts and in our lives, you know what else happens? We want other people to experience that too. We, We want other people to know our Savior. We want other people to be able to walk away from their past and their bad decisions and the things that they've been telling themselves in their their mind that are a, a lie straight from the pits of hell. Because Jesus wants us to know that if we'll take a step of faith toward Him and with Him, that we are now children, we are sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when we understand that, and we understand that this Savior has welcomed us into His royal family, we'll want other people to be a part of that family as well, especially our family members. We'll want them to be a part of this royal family. We will want our friends, we will want our co-workers to experience and to know what we have experienced and what we know in our lives. And so as we enter into this new year, and yes, continuing to talk about this step of transforming faith in our lives, but as we enter into another year, I just want to be reminded by Matthew today, not only what Jesus can do, but what Jesus does in and through a person once we've taken that step of faith for him. Because uh, Matthew, we see and we know that Matthew, when he walked away from his past and he walked away from that tax booth, he became a new person, a new creation. He became a genuine follower of Jesus. And we see what he does after that, after he's taken that step of faith and he's experienced this forgiveness and this transformation in his own life. So what does Matthew do first? I love this. I love this part of, uh, of the story there in verse 29. It says, Then, after he took a step of faith toward Jesus and he walked away from all of his past, what did he do? He threw a party. I love this. Then Levi, who is Matthew, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And look at who has been invited to the party. A large crowd of tax collectors. And others were eating with him. I absolutely love this. So the first thing that we see Matthew do is this. He has a party. And he invites other people to Jesus. He invites other people to Jesus. Friends, if we've experienced this transformation and this saving grace and forgiveness in our own lives, we're going to invite other people to meet him. That's exactly what Matthew did. Matter of fact, it appears to be the first thing that Matthew did once he became a follower of Christ was he began immediately to invite other people to Jesus. Not only is this awesome, but this is also a great strategic lesson for you and for me, right? I mean, there's some strategy that's involved here with what Matthew is doing because Matthew's like, you know what, I know how Jesus has accepted me. I know how he's invited me to be a follower of him, how he's changed my life. So Matthew immediately begins thinking, how can I get these other tax collectors? You know, how can I get these other shady and sketchy people that I've been, you know, calling friends in the past, how can I get these people 
to meet Jesus. Because here's the deal. I believe that if they will just meet Him, that Jesus will accept them too. And not only will He accept them, but He will change them and He will transform their lives and their past and the things that they have done and they are guilty of. And so Matthew has a party. And friends... Even tax collectors like to party, right? Matthew's sitting here thinking, you know, if I can just get my friends in a room with Jesus, maybe their lives will be changed. And all that he had to do, his only responsibility in this whole deal was this, to invite others to come. How simple was that? How simple is it to just invite others to come and meet Jesus. And that's exactly what Matthew did when he took this step of faith in his own life. The first thing, matter of fact, was that he invited others to meet Jesus. Because if he could just get them around Jesus, then his job is done. If he could just introduce them to Jesus and get them to meet Jesus, then it's on Jesus from that point on, right? It's all up to Jesus to take care of the rest, and so he throws a party. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this morning that there's not a person here in this room today that doesn't know someone who needs to meet Jesus. I'm going to say that there's not a person in this room today who doesn't know somebody else who needs to meet a Savior for their life. Do you know anyone Is there anyone in your life today that you are concerned about their spiritual well-being? You're concerned about their spiritual health. You're concerned about should they pass today where they would spend eternity. Is there someone that you have a burden for? Matthew did, and it was obvious. And he invited them to meet Jesus. I know people. And I'm sure you do too. Maybe it is a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a co-worker. I just want to encourage you today. It might be as simple as you inviting them to the same place that Jesus will be. It could be that simple. That you would invite them to come to a place where they could meet Jesus. Now we immediately think, I'll invite them to church. And that's good because I promise you, and I've said this before, if you get them here, we're going to introduce them to Jesus. They're going to meet Him. All right? So it could be that you need to invite them to church. It could be that you just need to invite them to your small group and let them see how a small group of followers talk about life and talk about what the Scriptures means to them and the things that they struggle with, even though they may have been followers of Christ their entire life. They still have struggles. They still have difficult things that they have to deal with in their life. And maybe if we just invited them to be a part of this small group of people, they would say, you know what, these people that are followers of Christ are like me. And then let Jesus do the rest. Maybe it could just be simply inviting them into your home, into your living room. I know we don't do a whole lot of that anymore, not near as much. I remember when I was a kid, we always had people uh, coming over to the house, and it seemed like after church, somebody was always there, and there was a, you know, uh, don't tell Grandpa, but we, my, my mom and dad played cards in our house, and... Uh, you know, they'd come over and play cards or play Wahoo. If you've never played Wahoo, then uh, you've totally missed out on life altogether. But, uh, you know, we did a lot of that. Lynette and I, we, we love to have people. We lo- she loves to cook and I love to eat. So we're the perfect pair. Maybe it's just inviting someone into your home, knowing that, You're a follower of Christ. Your family is a follower of Christ. And just getting to know someone else that you have a burden for that they would be a follower of Christ. Maybe just inviting them into your home. 
showing them some love, some acceptance. Because you know what? People in their family may look at them and the way that Matthew's family looked at him. And they may not be so proud. And that person in their mind might be saying, I'm not worthy of having any friends. I'm not worthy of being invited into anyone's home. But if we do that, then they might see the love of Jesus. Friends, just a simple invitation. That's all that Matthew did here. Because I think that most of us that are here today can say that because of Jesus, we're not who we once were. Because of Jesus, we're not who we used to be. And because of that, why would we not invite others to meet Him and to know Him? Sometimes it's just as simple as you inviting them and Jesus will take care of the rest. The second thing is this, and we don't really see that Matthew do this, but I'm sure it was a part of it, and I wanted to include it this morning. There is nothing more effective when it comes to evangelizing other people. And what I mean by evangelizing other people is just simply introducing them to Jesus. Okay? That's what it is. But there is nothing that is more effective and more powerful than you just sharing your story. Share your story. It's powerful. You may not think it's powerful. Oh, I've been a Christian all of my life. That's powerful. Share about how God drew you to an altar when you were a child or how God drew you to an altar or a place of, uh, of conviction when you were an adult. Just share your story. Because other people can relate to your story. The most powerful message that you have to share is what Jesus has done in your heart and in your life. That's the most powerful part of your life, the most powerful part of your story that you have. It's what Jesus has done for you, of how you met Him and what He's done in your life. And, and here's the deal, you know, sometimes, like we said, you, you might invite someone to come to church with you. Alright, well, what do they hear when they come? Well, they hear my story, Right? They hear me trying to relate my life to you so that you might understand a little better. But you know what? For the most part, those people that you invite that come in here, they don't know me. They don't know me, and, and, and I don't know them. I don't have a relationship with them the way that you have a relationship with, with them. And so my story, what I say, what I think, what Jesus has done in my life, you know, it, it may not mean that much to someone that you would bring to church with you when they hear my story. But if they know you, and they know you personally, and they hear your story, and they know your story, and they've been able to see the story of Jesus in your life, that makes it so much more personal to them. Am I right? It just is. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Peter is saying here, Simply share your story about the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And, and don't do it in a way that belittles people, all right? Don't, don't do it in a way that provokes debate or provokes division, all right? This gentleness and respect that Peter talks about here is sadly something that I think is missing in a lot of Christian environments and a Christian places today. I think we forget about this with gentleness and respect. And so often we try to shove what we believe or our message, we try to force that on people. And we try to shove it down their throats in all kinds of different ways. And we don't show them respect. We're not willing to, to listen, to hear 
what they're saying and what they think. And how can we ever share with them how Jesus can change them and work in their heart and their life if we're, we're not willing to listen to them and give them some respect? Because when we do that, when we're willing to listen, when we're showing people respect, they are so much more willing to listen to us and what we have to say. And this verse is very clear. Peter says, you should be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. You should be able to share that. You should be able to articulate that. And so if somebody comes up to you at at work tomorrow and they're like, you know, what is different about you? Why do you go to church? You know, why, why do you call yourself a Christian? Why do you do the things that you do? Why are you different? Then you should be prepared to give them a reason and an explanation for the hope that you have in Jesus and why you're, why you're trusting Him, if you're trusting Him. You should be able to share with other people why you're trusting Him completely with your future. Because that don't make sense to a lot of people. Can you explain to others why you do that? Why you trust Him with your present and trust Him with your future and trust Him with your eternity? We should be able to explain that, to share that. And that brings us to a a question I, I, I think we all have to ask today. Can you do that? Would you be able to share the reason behind the hope that you have in Jesus Christ? Can you do that? Are you prepared to do that? Do you know what that even looks like? 1 Peter 3 says that we should clearly be ready to share our story. We tell a lot of stories throughout the day. At least I know we do. You know, I I love telling stories, talking about, you know, things in the past, dumb things that I've done, you know, and I, man, I could write a book. Uh, People have encouraged me to actually write a book about the crazy things that have happened uh, to me uh, since I've just been in ministry because there's some crazy stuff. I probably should write it down someday. It's pretty easy to tell a story, especially when that story is a story we're familiar with. Do you share your story? of the hope that you have in Jesus with others. And then the third and last thing this morning is this. We must be prepared for the doubters. We must be prepared for the critics and not let them hinder our work or hinder our message. Don't let the critics hinder our message or our work. So back to Matthew the tax collector's story. He throws this party. Jesus brings the other disciples that he's called to come along with him to this party. And then not only does he invite Jesus, but he invites his tax collector friends to introduce them to Jesus. But there's a third group of people that show up to the party. And it's the religious folks. Let's just call them the church folks in town. They show up to the party, the Pharisees, and they are extremely offended that this party is going on, right? Church folks don't party, number one. Number two, church folks don't party with tax collectors. They're highly offended. Let's pick it up again there at verse 30. It says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples... Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And I think this is really interesting because, number one, I think it's interesting to me that these religious people complain to who? The disciples. Right? They complain to the disciples. It kind of, you know, I kind of try to picture everything in modern day thing. It's kind of like when people want to complain about something in the church. They hardly ever come to me. They normally will either go to a staff person or a board member, right? They hardly ever come to me, and I, I don't mind people coming to me because I normally have an explanation or, 
or, or whatever, but that's just kind of how things work. Well, that's what the, these uh, uh, religious Pharisees are doing. They complain to the disciples. They don't complain to Jesus. They complain to the disciples. And, and I kind of wondered, you know, number one, why they did that. But then it hit me. Um, I kind of picture this whole scenario like this. And I'm probably totally wrong. But I've told you when I read Scripture, I get pictures of it in my mind. I picture this party. I picture these disciples being there with Jesus. And it, it, it's a good party, Right? Y'all know what I mean? Some of y'all know what I mean by good party, all right? It's a good party because there's a bunch of sketchy people and tax collectors at this party, so it's a good party. Uh, I know this because I've been to some of those parties, and I've been with some of you, so just keep your mouth shut. But you've got these greedy, rich tax collectors that are there. Jesus is there all up in the middle of them, right? He's in the middle of this party, hanging out with all these sketchy people. It's an awesome party. And I kind of think that the disciples are really nervous about this whole thing. Do you you see that? I I mean, I think they're kind of nervous about being at this party. And they are there, but they're not really sure that they should be there. but, But they're there, right? They're there with Jesus because Jesus is there. And they know how everybody in the country feels about these tax collectors. And now Jesus has dragged them to the party with all of these losers, right? And I just kind of picture these disciples kind of hanging out by the door, feeling really uncomfortable, right? I mean, yeah, they're holding their red Solo cup, but they want it to be known that, you know, they're drinking the Kool-Aid. They're not drinking the wine, right? Uh, and so they're, they're, all, they're nervous about being there, and so they're kind of standing by the door, probably, you know, standing out there on the porch, if the truth be known about it, because they don't want to really be associated with it. And so when the people from the church start to show up, these religious leaders, right, they get really uncomfortable then. The disciples are hanging around there by the door and hanging around by the porch, and they're showing the, the religious leaders it's Kool-Aid, right? And these Pharisees, well, they're, you know, they're not going in. They're not going to be a part of the party. That would just be horrible for them to be seen at a party with sinners and tax collectors. And so I believe that's why they're questioning the disciples. And here's where it gets interesting in verse 31. This is a really cool thing about Jesus. I just love him. They're complaining to the disciples. Jesus being Jesus knows why they're there and what they're doing, right? He spots them. He hears them asking these questions. And he walks up to them in verse 31. Jesus answers them and says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Wow. Wow. What a powerful statement. What a powerful response to Jesus and the critics. uh, From Jesus to the critics. And one that, friends, we should let impact everything that we do as followers of Christ. Jesus is saying to them, you have totally missed the point. These people, they're exactly who I came here for. They're the ones I'm looking for. They're the ones that I've came to help. The ones that I've come to save. And so in light of that, I think a fair question for all of us to ask today is, as I was going through this again late last night, Are we more concerned with what church people think about us? Hear me now. Are we more concerned about what the church folks think about us? Or are we more concerned about getting people to Jesus? What are we more concerned about? What people think about us? Or simply getting people to Jesus? 
Are you more concerned with introducing people to Him? Or are you more concerned with your reputation? And I ask that question because that question convicts me. That question is a hard question for me to answer. And if I'm your pastor and I struggle with it, then I know that some of you must struggle with it too. Because if I'm honest, there are times when I'm more concerned about my reputation. I'm more concerned about what y'all think than I am about connecting people to Jesus. And I'd be willing to say that I'm not the only one here today that struggles with that. But here's the deal. I was put here to do my father's business. And his business is to introduce people to him. That's his business. Church, that's the business that we're in. My prayer as we go into 2022 is that we don't get sidetracked from that. We don't get distracted from that. We don't let the critics and the opinions of other people hinder us from doing our Father's business. That's why we're here. That's what this is all about. We often make the assumption that we're growing spiritually because our attendance is better at church. We make this assumption that we're growing spiritually because maybe we've done better in our Bible reading this past year than we have before. But the truth is, If our hearts are growing cold to the people that are far from God, then just how spiritually healthy are we? If I asked you this morning, who is the most spiritually mature person in the Bible? Who would you say it is? In the New Testament. Let's say New Testament. Who is the most spiritually mature person in the New Testament? Jesus. It's not a trick question. <laughs> Jesus? Kids always said in Sunday school, the right answer is always Jesus, right? <laughs> the most spiritually mature person that we know in the New Testament was Jesus Christ. So don't miss this. What is the most spiritually mature person in the Bible doing? The most spiritual mature person in the Bible is busy searching after people that are far from God and doing whatever it takes to introduce them to him that's what he's doing he's not searching after people who are far from god to make himself more spiritually mature he's searching after people who are far from god because he is spiritually mature what a powerful lesson just in these short few verses that we've looked at here today this is at the core what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We see it right here. It's at the core of who we are and what we've been called to do. And there should be something burning in our hearts for people that are far from God. And I just think that this is really important because Jesus thought that this was really important. There's no greater thrill, no greater adventure in life than introducing someone to Jesus and seeing Him change their life. I promise you, there's no greater thrill, no greater joy than to see Jesus do a work in someone's heart and in their life.
And it takes time, and it can be frustrating, and it can be heartbreaking. And we can't always control the outcome, and that drives me crazy because I'm a control freak. But there's nothing more important than this. This is who we are. This is our Father's business. And Matthew teaches us here what it looks like to take steps of faith once we've experienced Jesus personally in our own lives. This is my prayer for our church as we go into 2022. And I'm asking you to join me, not only in praying, but join me as we go about our Father's business in this coming year. Friends, saved people want to see other people saved. Let's pray. God, I thank you today again for your love. Because without your love, and without mercy, without grace, and without forgiveness, we're all Matthew in that tax collector booth. And it's our jail. But God, because of you, we can break free from our past. We can break free from our sin. We can break free from the embarrassment and everything that has held us in bondage in the past. Because of the power of what you did on the cross and in that empty tomb, we can be free from that and be called sons and daughters of the King of Kings. God, I thank you for accepting me. If I were in your shoes, I would have given up on me and moved on. But you never did. You kept inviting me. You kept drawing me. You kept convicting me. You kept putting me in situations, in services, in homes, and in families to where I would see you and learn more about you and who you are. And I thank you for doing that. And I know that you didn't just do that for me and in my life, but you've done that for everyone that's in this room today. You put us in situations put us in places where we will see you and know you. And so, God, my prayer today is, number one, this. If there's anybody here that's never taken this step of transforming faith and allowing you to do a work in their hearts and in their lives, that today would be a day where they would simply surrender their will and their life to you. And, God, and then that we would be like Matthew, inviting others to meet you, too, sharing our story and about what you've done in our life. And God, and avoiding those that think we're doing it all wrong and we're hanging out with the wrong people. God, give us the strength and the power to go about your business the way your very son went about your business when he was here on this earth. Find us faithful. Find us obedient. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Go with us now as we represent you in this community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I love you so much.